Well, thank you for the well wishes. Someone said, how old are you? At this age, I don't remember. So anyways, <laughs> here we are. So, yes, reminded of an elderly professor I had at seminary. And he said, you know, as the pastor stands at the door and people are leaving and say, thank you for the sermon. He said, you know what I call that? I said, no. He says, I call that the glorification of the worm. So our focus is on Christ and that's where we will turn. So let's go and pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house. Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign one who reigns and a day is coming when that trumpet is sound and our Savior will appear in the sky and we will join him. For some, Lord, they have gone before us and even this week we mourn the loss of Alan Brown's father. We rejoice that he is with you. But we pray for the Brown family and their mourning. Lord, uh, for others, this week has been difficult, and they're just saying, Lord, come. We think of Ron Page responding negatively to the chemo. We thank you the symptoms subsided, but we do pray for him. Lord, for others, we think of the Cluxton's granddaughter, Ellie, and her hospitalization this week as they do the EEG. Lord, we, we just have so many other prayer requests to think through. And Lord, we, we're just so grateful that in the midst of a world that seems to be unraveling, no, <laughs> you are the sovereign one. And it's your son, the cornerstone on which we are established. It's where we find hope and peace. Father, guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your precious word. And we're so grateful for Peter's little epistle nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. Guide us today in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4 verse 7 is where we are. It's been 60 years since the story of the Hobbit. And we get to the Lord of the Rings and it, it too begins with a birthday party except it's 111th of Bilbo Baggins, Baggins. And here he is celebrating with his 144 guests with one arm in his coat and another one waving according to Tolkien. He pontificates and he gives them three announcements because he knows that his departure is imminent. Peter knows that the end is near. In fact, he's going to start verse 7 here, for the culmination of all things is near. It's pressing in. You say, what is that? Well, verse 5, last week Pastor Michael gave us the text from 1 through 6. In verse 5 it says, they will face a reckoning before Jesus Christ, who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. It's imminent. It's at any moment. And so in verses 1 through 6, Peter tells us what we shouldn't do. And that's why Pastor Michael played bad cop last week. I get to play good cop. Because uh, uh, 7 through 11 is the things we should be doing. And that's what he's going to highlight. Now, I know I've heard it from others who say, wait a minute. Peter says that all things are near. <laughs> that was 2,000 years ago. Does this mean this is a bit of a farce? I mean, really? You know, he thought it was imminent. It didn't happen in his lifetime. It didn't happen in the first century. It didn't happen in the second century. I mean, really? What's he talking about? 
We'll get to 2 Peter after we're done with 1 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle reminds us of a very important truth. A single day is like a thousand years with the Lord. And a thousand years are like a single day. And then he states, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some regard slowness, but is being patient towards you. Why? Because he does not wish for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so, yes, in the grand scheme of things, all things are at hand. All things are ready. Peter's not naive. He sat at Jesus' feet many times as Jesus talked about the end times. He saw the kingdom Peter did in all its glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he knows full well what he's writing about. And he says, the time is near. And so... In these verses, 7 through 11, he's going to talk about three very important things for believers. That is your prayer life, your love for one another, and the use of your God-given gift or gifts. And it's not for self-preservation in the end times. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of believers who are scattered throughout modern Turkey. They're suffering for their faith. Things are difficult. Home... (laughs) They, they've been they've abandoned their homes. And, but he's not talking about these three things for the purpose of self-preservation. Nor is he trying to get them to live a life that's compatible, make Christianity palatable to its culture. Uh-uh. No, the purpose for all of it's found in the latter part of verse 11, which we'll look at, and that is to bring glory to God through Christ Jesus. And so we'll see that. But let's go back to verse 7, and let's look at this. You're following along in your notes, the first of these is a call to examine our prayer life. If we're to glorify the Lord, how do we do this? Number one, it's through prayer. So notice what he says. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of, here it is, prayer. Directly linked with prayer are these two verbs, these two commands. First is to be self-controlled. One scholar writes, it carries the idea of maintaining a sense of promotion, keeping one's head in the game despite the dangers and fears. Showing my age, remember the phrase, be cool, you know, uh, be calm idea here. It's interesting, in the Greek, there's uh, the opposite word is one of drunkenness. No, you're to be alert. You're to be self-controlled. Another uh, opposite term that's used often is mania. No, no, no. In other words, when it comes to your prayer life, your your prayer is not based on panic or worry, but of peace. It's not prayer based on desperation, but it's one of hope. It's not prayer based on daydreams and unreality, but of trust. It's not prayer based on dread and resentment, but of joy. I was talking to a couple this week. Well, the pages, Ron had a very adverse reaction to the chemo. I was talking to Beverly, and Beverly said, you know, we're just praying. She said, you know, it is so a comfort to know God is in control. She wasn't wringing her hands. Oh, yes, she's concerned. Yes, they're, they're, they wish Ron wasn't in that hospital bed. 
But it's an understanding, no, that's a self-controlled mindset that then guides one's prayers. David's in his commentary writes, it's a prayer that calls upon and submits to God in the light of reality seen from God's perspective and thus obtains power and guidance in the situation, however evil the times may be. Why? Because we know, verses 5 and 6, God is, Christ himself is coming back, he's going to judge, right? And that all things are near. The very things that Peter has been writing about, we know, come to fruition. Confession's good for the soul. This past week I was talking to one of our elders. Uh, We have an elders meeting uh, this afternoon and evening so you can pray for us. I couldn't think of a better birthday gift. Um, Another meeting. And... uh, but I was panicking about some of the, th- not pan- well, I was just thinking through, okay, the finances, the buildings, some things we're talking about. And the elder says over the phone, you know what, let's just pray. I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good idea. That, that's being self-controlled. That, that's thinking through, you know, okay, let's see this from God's perspective. Another term he uses here is not only be self-controlled, but be sober-minded. This is speaking of restraint, sobriety. It calls for a realistic view of the world and the need to be alert. In other words, there's no room for laziness or routine prayer. Let's pray for the food. Lord, thank you for the food. Amen. Let's eat. Mm-mm. No. Um, it, it's, it's expectant prayer. It's serious prayer. It's disciplined prayer. And we need to be careful. When we hear the word sober-minded, immediately we think of that 17th century character of a of a Puritan. <laughs> no, no, no. He's not talking you can't have fun. He's not talking about you don't laugh or an absence of sense of humor. What he's talking about is single-mindedness. If you have a physical coming up and you know your A1C has been bad and you're concerned about that upcoming physical when they take your A1C, you're going to watch your sugar intake. At least I hope you would, right? And yet, inevitable, someone makes uh, homemade cookies and places it before you say, no, no, I want one, but I can't. That's being sober-minded. Why? Because you're, you're focused in. Some of you are smiling. You ate the cookie. I know it. I can just tell it. Shame on you. You need to be sober-minded. I'll eat the cookie for you. Yes. <clears throat> Peter's saying, listen, the time is near. And when it comes to your prayer life, you need to be self-controlled. You need to be sober-minded. It's vastly different than what you see in verses 3 through 5. I'll go back to chapter 4, earlier part. He says, you used to live in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness. I mean, that's not being self-controlled. That's not being sober-minded. But he says, now is the time you must be. How exactly can we be self-controlled and sober-minded in our prayer life? I was jotting down just a few things as I was thinking through this. One is to know what we're praying about. Know the situation, the events, who's involved. Secondly, know the word. Using scripture is a great way to pray because it it, it puts some guardrails up and it, it helps you focus in on what you're praying through. Be in tune with the Spirit's leading. Disciplined and intentional in your praying. Uh, Perhaps you need to create a prayer journal, have a prayer list in front of you. Uh, Another way is to set a time aside. Mornings may not be you. (laughs) No, I'm not very spiritual in the morning. Well, then maybe it's the evening then, or maybe it's the middle of the day. 
but find a set time, a structure, and then confidence that the Lord will answer your prayer. Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Peter says the time is near. And number one, you, you need to be fervent in your prayer. You need to be sober-minded, self-control. But he's not done there. In verse 8, he says, Above all, keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. He says several very important things about loving one another. I hope you've, let's just look at these. Let me, I hope you can see these, but let's look at them. Love should be preeminent in the life of the believer. We see that as he starts off. He says, above all, it's the badge of a believer. You, you pull back the, the coat or the shirt. You know, it's not the Superman with an S. It should be love for the believer. John 13, Jesus said in the upper room, everyone will know by this that you are my disciples. What is it this? If you have love for one another. It should be dominating our thought life. It's above all the virtues. Why? Because the time is near. James 5, 9 reminds us that love is vital because the judge is near. Same keeping here what we see in 1 Peter James 5 states, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge stands before the gates. I've mentioned this before. My grandmother used to say, you don't want to be doing that when the Lord comes back, right? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> she also used to say that cleanliness is next to godliness because you know that's what the good book says. I never did find that passage, but anyway. <clears throat> Love must be preeminent. Love must also remain consistent in the life of the believer. Notice the Net Bible translates this fervent in verse 8. It's the idea of not slacking off. It's, it's being eager. It, it's, it's a term used of athletes who are trying to obtain that goal. In other words, the love needs to be not only eager, but it's intense. It's going to require work. And I would argue with the power of the Spirit, it's even possible to love people we really don't even like. <laughs> that, that's the role of the Spirit working in and through us. How does love slack off? Because notice what he says, you, you've got to keep this fervent. Well, that would imply that it, it might slack. So what does that mean? Well, it's interesting, the opposite here of fervency is found in 2 Corinthians 10. In 2 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul describes his opponents, listen to this, as arrogantly magnifying themselves according to their own standards. In other words, I would argue the slacking off comes from self-centeredness, from personalizing our feelings or seeking our own agenda. That's where the slacking starts to, to take place. And all of a sudden, we're not looking at others through Christ lenses, but in a mirror. In other words, it's all you can see is yourself. <laughs> and we got a problem. So love, it must be preeminent. It needs to be consistent. And notice what he says, because love covers, he's quoting here from Proverbs 10, covers a multitude of sins. No, love does not atone for sin. That was Christ's work on the cross. But rather, a believer is lavishing love on others and overlooking the sins and offenses. Again, we're not 
minimizing the sin, but we're extending grace. We're extending compassion. And you say, well, what's the basis for that? I think Proverbs 10 is key here, which he cites, which that text says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. But it's also consistent with the New Testament. Remember the love passage of 1 Corinthians 13? Everyone loves 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's the call for us as believers as we engage one another. It's walking in grace. It's walking in compassion. And I'm preaching to the choir because you as a church do that so well. Keep it up. And that is our motto as a church, isn't it? Loving God and loving others. And you're doing it well. He then gives, he's kind of talked into these, you know, ivory towers. And then he takes it and makes it very practical in how we love one another. Notice what he says in verse 9. Show hospitality. It's that practical way. It's a tangible way. And I'll tell you, hospitality, it's an interesting study. You look at it in the Old and New Testament. It is peppered throughout the Old Testament. You think about Abraham with his visitors. Five times in the New Testament, it's commanded to be hospitable. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints, pursue hospitality. Now, when I use the word hospitality in a Western mindset, we think, we think entertainment, don't we? That's not the case in an ancient world. First century world in particular was thinking of a, it was a sacred duty. It was your responsibility, especially with, with someone who's a stranger to bring them in. Human, response, human uh, hospitality was a reflection of God's hospitality. We see that in Luke's gospel. Luke 14. In fact, Matthew 25 talks about you, you gave that cup, you, you did these things in my name. In other words, we are showing Christ to individuals when we show hospitality. And it's a qualification of Christian leaders that you have to be hospitable. The term means that <laughs> there is a dying of to self, isn't there? It, it, it means we're not self-absorbed if we are looking to minister to others through hospitality and also eliminate self-preservation. You meet folks who are concerned, well, I'm not going to have people in my home. I, I, I can't do the entertainment because, oh, you know, Sally does it so much better than I do. And, you know, and Georgette has this home that's just gorgeous. I don't have that. Careful. I love one pastor makes this comment. He says, if you're afraid of hospitality, that is, you don't have much personal strength or personal wealth, he says, that's good. Now watch what he says. Then you won't imitate anybody. You'll depend all the more on God's grace. You will look all the more to the work of Christ and not your own work and what a blessing people will get in your simple home or little apartment. I thought that was great. We're called to be hospitable. There's no exceptions. There's no stratosphere here that would demand these levels are to be hospitable and not these. No, no. It's interesting. I was reading an article in Job Street. It said seven must-have values and skills to thrive in the hospitality industry. You know what the top two were? Patience and empathy. 
compassion, love. There it is. A world understanding a little bit about uh, what it means. And grant you, many of us are never going to open a B&B, right? Or be the matri di at the, the local restaurant. But we are called to provide hospitality as a sign of love for others. Now, let's face it, there are times when you would like to embrace the little saying, hospitality is making your guest feel at home, even when you wish they were. <laughs> right? There are those times when you go, oh. And I think that's why Peter says, no, he doesn't let us off the hook, right? He says, show hospitality without complaining. <laughs> My grandmother was great. She'd have us over and we'd be sitting around the table eating and she said, you know, that roast was two ninety-five a pound. You're like, oh, thanks, grandma. That makes me feel really good. I love it. No, it's doing it without murmuring or grumbling or complaining. And, and interesting, that term is loaded because it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the Israelites in their interactions with the Lord. They grumbled and complained and God judged them. It is a front to the Lord. It's a rebellion against his will. Why? Because he wants his people to be hospitable. And when you are not, it's an affront to him. And so it's a loaded term. Well, Peter's not done. He's called for us to, to grow in our prayer life and to love one another. And then he gets to the gifts that, that we've been given. Verse 10, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. I love it. God is so creative, right? Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do it with the strength that God supplies so that in everything, God will be glorified through Christ Jesus. Peter makes several statements about our gifts. Number one, no believer is exempt. The Lord gifts each believer. It may, some have more than others, but he gifts every believer. Secondly, our gifts are to be used to serve others. This echoes Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, where he says, God has given some to be apostles, others prophets, evangelists, teachers. But listen to what he says then in verse 12, of chapter 4 of Ephesians, to equip. The gift wasn't so they could be exalted. This goes back to why my elderly professor said, hey, uh, that's the glorification of the warm. Who are you? You're nobody. And the only reason God has given you that gift to preach is because it's to build up the saints to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ. The gifts that the Lord has given us is not so we can build a resume, start a fan club, or have more likes on our social media. No, no. It's to build up the church. And our gifts, we see, belong to God. They're not ours. We're only responsible. We are to be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us. Some say, well, I don't like that gift. You view it more as the German term for gift means poison. You know, you're thinking, no, I don't really like this. God in his sovereignty and his great wisdom has felt this is what you need, what I need. One size doesn't fit all. Again, I love that phrase, their varied grace of God. The beauty of the body of Christ is that people have variety and you say, well, I'm not sure exactly what my gift is. <laughs> I love the early church father, Augustine. He said, if you want to know your God-given gifts, 
First know that the purpose of spiritual gifts is to bring unity to the church, to build it up. Then love God and do what you feel like doing. <laughs> to paraphrase Augustine. He's right. Get involved. Serve. And in so doing, you may say, oh, no, working in the nursery is not my gift. But I really like working with middle schoolers or whatever the case may be. And all gifts we see here are rooted in God's grace. Peter reminds his readers that we cannot earn these gifts and there's no room for pride. In fact, to not utilize the gifts is to harm the body of Christ, which we are used, these gifts are to be used to build up. And again, it's a front to the Lord because you're saying, well, he really didn't know what he was doing. Years ago, we had a garage sale and some of our friends stopped by, just check it out. And all of a sudden, my wife, Lori, just jumps up, grabs an item off the table and goes into the house. And I'm left standing there. Hi, good to see you. Good to have you. I'm like, Where, what in the world? So she comes out later, which is not like my wife, who's you know, a social butterfly. She comes, oh, hi, good to see you. And they leave. And I said, what was that all about? She said, that was the toaster they gave us for our wedding gift. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> She goes, we have three toasters. I mean, how many more toasters do you need? But, oh, you know, so I was glad she remembered. Can you imagine if the Lord came and we were having a garage sale and here's a gift that he's entrusted to us and it's got a sticker for 50 cents? Ooh. It's the same idea. Our gifts are rooted in God's grace. They're to be used, not stored. You're not a bank. And... It's not stated explicitly here, but it is in verses, verse 11. Our gifts are ultimately to be used to glorify God. And notice he gives some caveats to this in verse 11. He gives us two verbs that are linked with our gifts. And it comes in the connection of speaking and serving. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do it with the Lord's strength that he supplies. The first deals with the rhetoric. I mean, there, there's two important implications here. One is it brings great encouragement because our words, our wisdom, they're not ultimately going to change anybody's life. It's the Lord's words. And so isn't that great? We're, we're, this person isn't dependent on what we say. It's, it's what the Holy Spirit utilizes through us and his word, God's word. And that's a comfort. Secondly, though, it does indicate that we need to be faithful. This is serious business. Is our speech tempered with an understanding that we will have to account before the Lord how we communicate? What we as Christians permit ourselves to say, what we permit ourselves to write, what we permit ourselves to be involved with, with others who are communicating? And this isn't just in speech. It's, it's our telephone conversations, our postings on social media, what we text. Good rule of thumb is what lawyers will say. Don't put anything in writing you don't want the world to see. Well, don't put anything in writing via orally or typing that you don't want the Lord to see. Because why? Verse 7, the culmination of all things is near. And so Peter says to the church, pray, love, and serve, be careful. And that's where we get to this latter part with the gifts, not only how you speak utilizing your gifts, but in, in your service. The phrase here that it's used is a term used of slaves who are to manage the household, the estate of their master. 
What are pitfalls to faithful stewardship? I wrote down five. One is laziness. Two is a lack of faithfulness in the small things to whom God has trusted. He'll trust more if we're a faithful steward. Thinking of ourselves as the source of our gifts, that's dangerous. Sowing to the flesh, that pleasing ourselves. And finally, striving for earthly treasures. Our focus is on God's glory. And so those are some good guidelines that help us not fall into a very being a bad steward. And so with our gifts, he says, listen, when it comes to speaking, when it comes to serving, you look to the Lord. This is what needs to be, as a faithfulness to him. And where does the success come? Not in self-exaltation, but in God being glorified. Because again, so that in everything, God will be glorified. And I love this next phrase, through Christ Jesus. It indicates that the redemption brought about by Jesus and his present lordship in our lives is vital. Marshall in his commentary on 1 Peter writes, the whole of Christian experience takes place in the name of Jesus. That's why we read 1 Peter 1 earlier as a congregation. It's who we are in Christ and we need to live accordingly. And so he concludes this section, which is interesting because it's a doxology. That is, he breaks out in praise. To God be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. You think, wait a minute, you're not done with the letter. It's like one of those pastors who say, in conclusion, and then they go on for another 15 minutes. But you don't expect this. In ancient writings and letters, the, the doxology was at the end, but Peter just can't contain himself. And he says, listen, it is God. And this isn't a wish that he's making. Oh, I, I wish, I pray he gets this. No, no, no. He's saying, this is who he is. It's a statement of fact. God possesses glory by right. That's the great news in all of this. So how do we respond? A couple things there in your notes. The first of all, the need to pray and the ability to love others comes far more natural when we realize we are to live our lives for God's glory. I love John the Baptist in that scene in John 3. You know, here comes Jesus. John has a very powerful ministry. And yet he even says to his disciples, you need to follow him. And John makes that statement in the latter part of 3. He says, he, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. That needs to be said of us as a church as well. This isn't about CBF. It's not about planning a church in Westfield. It's about Christ and seeing him exalted. Second Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church and he states in verse one, and in this regard, we pray for you always that our God will make you worthy of his calling and fulfill by his power your every desire for goodness and every work of faith that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. What a great prayer. That's what we need to be praying for one another. Lord, may you be glorified in us as a body through our prayer, through our love, and through our use of our gifts. According, Paul writes, to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to ask ourselves, in my prayer time, am I glorifying the Lord or is that a routine to check it off? Oh, did my prayer today. 
Is my interactions with Dr. Pain in the neck or Susie the pest glorifying the Lord? <laughs> Is the use of the gifts, talents, and abilities the Lord entrusted me glorifying the Lord? Or I've just grown very comfortable sitting on the sidelines and allowing everyone else to be involved? Well, there's one more in your notes, and that is the use of our spiritual gifts must recognize our debt to the Lord. Ephesians 4, earlier Paul states, you're to live worthy of the calling for which you, well, of the calling for which you were called. And later in Romans 12, he says, it's your reasonable service. You may be sitting here wondering why in the world would anyone devote time to prayer, love those that are unlovely, and talk about service to the point of dying to self? There's two reasons. Number one, it's a reminder of what the Lord has done for us. You may be sitting here this morning and you've never come to grips with that. Oh, you've heard about Jesus dying on a cross and all that, but the true implications of what that really means has never seeped to your soul. The thought that God, before the creation of the universe, looked down and said, I love you. <laughs> I'm calling you. You say, well, Hoffman, it's you don't know my story. He loves you. And for us as believers, the idea loving one another, praying for one another, serving one another. It's a reasonable service. D.A. Carson gives this statement. It concerns forgiving others, but it, it applies. He says, the idea is not simply that we have been forgiven and therefore we ought to forgive, but that God himself in Christ has forgiven us and therefore our debt is incalculable. No matter how much wretched evil has been done against us, it is a little compared with the offense that we have thrown in the face of a holy God. <laughs> Yet God in Christ has forgiven us. If we know anything of the release of that forgiveness, if we've glimpsed anything of the magnitude of the debt we owe to God, our forgiveness of others, may I add our prayer life, our love for others, the use of our gifts, will not seem too great a task. So one is to recognize what has God done for us? And I love that we take communion once a month because it's a reminder, may we not forget what Christ has done for us. But secondly, in the context of 1 Peter 4, it's an understanding that the end is near. Again, what did verse 5 say? They will face, and he's referring to those who've not embraced the gospel, those who, who've sought to live life as they, they want and not bend their knee before a holy God. He says, they will stand ready to be judged. There is a day coming. Peter knew that. You say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Yes, but a day's coming when we will have to stand before the Lord. And it, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and you're here this morning, you, you, you shouldn't be playing games. The Lord is it and he will hold you accountable. There is no justification when you get before the judge to say, well, you know, you didn't know my home life. I was abused. Or you didn't understand, Lord, the things that I had to deal with. I was gonna say, 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't, according to 1 Peter 4, and elsewhere in the New and Old Testament, you will stand judged. The time is near. And for us as believers, it's a reminder. In the midst of suffering and persecution like Peter's recipients, we need to be reminded of the assurance and hope that we have because who we are in Christ and that Christ is coming. It's true for us today as it was for the recipients of 1 Peter. And you say, well, I don't know, Hophidits. I don't know if I, I can do that. This has been a very difficult season in my life. Well, let me encourage you. Throughout history, the Lord has sustained his people and he's doing it even today. I was recently reading a statement made from the Kiev Theological Seminary. They posted this on Facebook. As the bombing was taking place in Kiev, this posting was from last year, it was citing Isaiah 41.10. And the seminary urged its constituents not to panic. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, don't panic. Remember how many times God in his word says, don't be afraid. Remember, these folks have bombs launched in their backyard. They're losing loved ones, family are fleeing. Don't panic, the seminary states, noting that fear equals paralysis while prayer, trusting God, and love of neighbor gives all strength. Where did they learn that? First Peter 4. The time is near. Things are hard. And what does Peter say? Pray and do it sober-mindedly. Love and use your gifts. Interesting, another pastor just north of Kiev makes this statement. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, mend the broken. That's hospitality. And as we do, we will offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. Oh, church, may we grow in our prayer life. The time is near. May our love for one another be strengthened. The time is near. And in our service, may we be found faithful, both in speech and in service, because the time is near. Father, we come to you and we thank you that the time is near. There's a day coming and it is imminent. On your grand scheme of things, all's ready to transpire. This may be the last Sunday we as Christians celebrate here on planet Earth <laughs> as we are taken. But you may delay. But in the grand scheme, it's still near. And Father, there may be some individuals here saying, mm, I'm not sure where I am in that equation because I've really never came to grips with what it means that Jesus came, he died on a cross and was rose from the dead. The implications that he took my sin, my crud and nailed it to a tree. He bore that penalty that we as the human race should have endured. So Father, if there's individuals here who've not come to that understanding, I pray today you would open their eyes to the truth. For us as believers, what a glorious thing to know the time is near. 
because we know who we are in your son Christ. We know who, uh, that our inheritance is undefiled, unfailing, imperishable. It's kept by you. And so Lord, in the process, help us to be found faithful. Faithful in our prayers, faithful in our love for one another, and, pray, and faithful in the gifts that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.